I saw a video shared this week of a boy sitting across a table from presumably his father, from an adult man, and the boy was maybe four, five years old, and the man spoke to the boy from across the table, and he says, I'm going to let you choose between one of these two items that I will show you, and he proceeds to lay out on this table on one side two stacks of $100 bills, and he says $10,000 in cash. Okay, the boy's watching. And then he says, on the other side, I'm going to take a newly minted pack of Oreos and open this. And he sets out two Oreos on the other side of the table. You can see where this is going. The boy, again, probably four or five years old, has not taken his eyes off of those Oreo cookies. He's staring at those cookies. And he says this. And the, dad, and the dad says, wait, wait, are you sure? There's $10,000 cash right here. The boy is just dead set on those cookies. He says, this, yes, and he picks them up. Sometimes the thing that seems best to us, the thing that we most desire, is not, in fact, the best thing for us. Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This is the story of Genesis 3, is it not? The account tells us that Eve saw the fruit on the tree and it looked good. It looked good to eat. It was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. The tree looked good. It seemed right to Eve. But God's word had said that eating of the tree would lead to death. If she eats of the tree, it would lead her to death. Adam and Eve had a desire for something that God said they must not take. They should have trusted God's word over their own desires in that moment, over what seemed right in the moment. They should have conformed their desires to God's desire, their wills to God's revealed will. Instead, of course, they chose death. On the other hand, there are things that do not seem good to us, that are not appealing to us or desirable to us, but in fact lead to life and blessing. Broccoli, kids, amen? Broccoli doesn't look good to, to young kids, but it's good for you. Uh, that stack of $10,000 didn't seem very desirable to the young boy uh, in the moment because he didn't understand what it was. He didn't see the big picture. He didn't know that he could actually go out and buy a whole pack of Oreos or maybe 10,000 packs of Oreos and still have plenty of money left over. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 sets up a contrast between two kinds of desires, two ways of life, two visions of the good life, the desires of fallen men and the desire of the will of God. The former way of life, what Peter calls doing what the Gentiles desire to do, and the new way of life, living according to the way that God desires, according to God's will. 
the old way of life is characterized by lust, by selfishness, licentiousness. And the new way of life is characterized by self-control, sober-mindedness, sincere and earnest love toward others that results in service toward others. One way leads to death and the other to life. One way to judgment and condemnation, the other to great blessing and glory. Peter has just shown us this great vision of the victory of Christ over sin, over death, and over the powers. Last time we were in 1 Peter, we looked at his teaching in chapter 3 on Christ suffering once and for all for sins, that he was put to death in our place, in the flesh, and raised by means of the Spirit. Peter spoke of the victory of Christ in his resurrection from the dead, his entering into heaven and sitting at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. And then we're left at the end of chapter 3, as it were, like the disciples gazing up into heaven after Christ has ascended to the Father's right hand and saying, now what? Okay, Christ is victorious. Now what do we do? Peter now moves into a set of instructions for what that victory means for us here and now, for the time that we have left in our own mortal bodies. And he sets these instructions up in two sections. The first is the old life that we need to forsake, the life lived according to sinful desires. And the second is the new life that we need to pursue, the life lived to the glory of God, lived according to God's desires. Let us consider first the life that we need to forsake. The first thing we see is that there is a battle in forsaking this life. Peter says in chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, arm yourselves. Equip yourselves for battle. Peter uses warfare language here. There's a battle going on, and we need to be prepared to engage in it. Christ has won the victory, yes, in his death, resurrection, and ascension. But the warfare has not ended. He's dealt the decisive blow to the enemy, but the serpent is still flailing about, seeking to kill steal and destroy. The final outcome of the war has been determined, but there are still battles being fought on this side of the great judgment. Peter here highlights what theologians have called the antithesis, the antithesis, the idea that there's a fundamental difference or conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. God declared war on the serpent right after Adam's fall in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And since then, there has been enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Peter, throughout the letter, holds a kind of tension between that reality, the antithesis, 
and what we might call common grace, the notion that there's a certain recognition of the good that humans have by virtue of being made in the image of God. After the fall, sin darkened our minds, darkened our understanding, twisted our thinking, twisted our desires, but God graciously restrains evil in such a way that even unbelievers can share in some perception of goodness. You remember in chapter 2, we talked about submitting to the emperor. Peter talked about pagan rulers uh, who are to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Okay, so even unbelievers have some recognition of the good, of what is good and evil, of justice. Uh, even in those who have not had their minds renewed by the gospel, there's uh, a kind of understanding of right and wrong. But here in chapter 4, Peter highlights the other side of that tension. So we have common grace and we have the antithesis, the contrast bet- between Uh, things that fallen humanity desires in our sinful nature and the things that God desires. There's a fundamental difference between the natural mind, the mind according to the flesh, and the spiritual mind. And just to be clear, Peter's not saying that the battle is just out there in the world. It's just us versus those unbelievers, those wicked pagans who are doing all the sinning and the evil in the world. Now, he's giving these instructions to Christians, okay, because the battle very much rages right here within us. That battle continues to rage within us. He wants us to go to war with sin in our own lives as much, if not more, than he wants us to oppose it out in the world. So there's a battle going on, and it's being fought right here in our own hearts. With what kind of weapons does he tell us to arm ourselves? Okay, he says, arm yourselves with the same mindset that Christ had. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same intention. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Prepare yourselves for this battle against sin with the mind of Christ. Christ was obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death on a cross. He resolved to have nothing to do with sin. He went to war with sin and defeated the power of sin through his death on the cross. Christ was finished with sin, not in the sense that Christ used to sin and then he stopped at some point. No, Peter says that Christ was sinless. He's the spotless lamb. But he was finished with sin in the sense that he was putting a stop to it. He was putting a stop to the power of sin. He disarmed the power of sin by taking the curse upon himself. He suffered once and for all to deal with the penalty for our sin and the power of sin in our lives. And since that is the case, Peter tells us, be done with sin. Christ has conquered sin. Be done with it. Declare war on sin in your life. Forsake the path of sin that leads to death and misery. Resolve to be done with it. This side of the resurrection, we continue to deal with a war within, a battle over whether we will order our lives according to the Spirit 
according to the things that God desires or whether we will settle back into the old ways of our sinful nature. Peter says, have this mindset, arm yourself for battle. Be prepared to go all the way to the cross so that you can live for what God desires. And he means that quite literally for his original audience. Be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to do whatever it takes to be done with sin. Whether that be through insults, as he'll talk about in a moment, or rejection, or worse. We need to be ready to do whatever it takes. We must die to the flesh and to the world. Our loyalty to Christ should not be a flimsy thing. We should not be easily taken in by the enemy. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh and won the victory, arm yourselves for battle with the mind of Christ. Get your mindset straight so you can spend the rest of this time that you have in this life living according to God's will. So there's a battle in forsaking our old lives. Peter goes on to talk about this description of the former life. Verse 3, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Hey, Peter sketches out the life of those under the dominion of sin with this list of vices. These are the things that pagans want to do, being enslaved by the desires of the flesh. I don't think Peter here is suggesting that every single pagan can be charged with all of these vices, but he's painting a picture of life given over to the dominion of sin, lives ruled by sinful passions. Calvin is helpful here. He says regarding this verse, we are by nature inclined to all these evils. And not only so, but that we are so much under the power of depravity that these fruits which he mentions necessarily proceed from it as from an evil root. There is indeed no one who has not within him the seed of all vices, but all do not germinate and grow up in every individual. Yet the contagion is so spread and diffused through the whole human race that the whole community appears infected with innumerable evils and that no member is free or pure from the common corruption. Okay, Calvin's saying the root of all these vices lies within us in our fallen nature. Apart from the grace of God to transform us and change us, we would all destroy ourselves in these ways. We would think this is the good life. This is the path that I want to choose. These are the Oreos that seem so good. Apart from God's restraint in the world, the whole world would seek its own destruction. Peter says the time is enough. The time is enough for living like pagans. In other words, you've wasted enough of your life living this way. Don't give yourselves over to living that way anymore. That part of your life is over. Christ has redeemed you from that way of life. Now that our eyes have been opened to the truth, we see that for what it is. We see the bait that Satan had laid for us. And we see that that old way of life leads to death. How could you let yourself fall back into it? The time of ignorance 
is over now that we have the eyes of faith to see clearly. Peter's speaking to a group of people, of course, who have come out of a life of sin and rebellion against God. They have people who have been redeemed from this former way of life. And they're now walking in this new way of life. For many of you, especially covenant children and those who grew up in the church, this is not your experience. You were never part of a biker gang or drug dealer. Uh, Though you certainly experience the fight against sin in your own life. You've not walked the type of lifestyle that Peter outlines here. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that testimony. Quite the opposite. You should give thanks to God that he has saved you from that path of misery and pain. uh, From the life that leads to death. This should be the norm for covenant communities. That's what Uh, for the covenant church. That's what Christ came to do, is to redeem us from sin, uh, including our children from this kind of grown, mature uh, life that leads to death. But as for all of us, Peter here has a warning too for covenant children. You are not to go back to the ways of your first father, Adam. Though you were born into the covenant, you were still born in sin, and your past in a very real sense, includes the old Adam and the seed of all these vices. So Peter would say to you, don't waste your life by falling back into the old Adam, falling back into what God has graciously saved you from. There's also a cost here that Peter talks about to forsaking the old way of life. He says in verse 4, with respect to this, they, the pagans, are surprised When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They malign you. Okay, now they're surprised. These uh, believers that Peter is speaking to have been saved out of this life of sin, out of this flood of debauchery, and now their neighbors, their buddies, are all surprised that they're not joining in. Peter's audience has converted out of this life according to the flesh. And now these uh, Christians are acting differently. They aren't participating in the same things that they used to. They've forsaken the old life ruled by sin. And now there's a visible contrast between the church and the world. There's this antithesis between the way that believers are living and the way that their unbelieving friends and neighbors are living. And they think we are weird right? They think we are weird. They think it's strange when you join, don't join in with them. Now, it's a bit complicated historically because we've gone through Christendom, right? We've gone through a Christian society, and now we're on the tail end of that in America where we're increasingly more and more an apostate country. Um, but in a society that's permeated with biblical morality, this contrast would not be as sharp. And so there are pockets still in America where that contrast might not be as sharp. But again, as I said, in our increasingly post-Christian pagan society that we are returning to, we're really returning to a situation, unless God prevents it, much like Peter's original audience. Christians should look strange in a culture that doesn't know the Lord. You don't party like the world on the weekends. 
You don't look at porn like everyone else does. You don't dress in provocative ways in the way that the culture promotes. You don't try to do the bare minimum at your job and slack off when your boss is not around. You don't try to cheat on your tests. Your kids are in church instead of at the ball fields on Sunday morning. We look different than the world. Okay? We still see that difference even here in the South in the Bible Belt. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of uh, folks who have compromised in these areas. Not only do you look weird to the unbelieving world, but they eventually start to malign you. Okay? Peter says to his audience, uh, they're surprised and then they malign you. Okay, this is part of the suffering that Peter referred to earlier. In Peter's day, and especially after, Christians were viewed as antisocial for not joining into the civic festivities, which included idolatry and debauchery. Some of the public religious uh, activity included the things that are mentioned here in this list of vices. And so not joining in uh, to the public activities uh, resulted in Christians getting blamed for all kinds of things. Uh, Nero is famous for blaming the Christians on all kinds of uh, tragedies, the fire in Rome, um, any kind of natural disaster. Let's just blame the Christians. Okay? They weren't uh, pinching incense to the emperor. They weren't offering sacrifices to the gods. It's probably their fault. And so they start to get maligned. They start to eventually uh, receive physical persecution, start to be brought into the Colosseums. Peter reminds them to keep focused on God's word and on reality. Are you more concerned about the judgment of men or the judgment of God? He gives us a motivation for forsaking the old life, and that is that judgment is coming. He says this in verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. All will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Christ is either a living stone for you leading to life, or he is a stumbling stone leading to condemnation. Those who believe the gospel will be raised in the spirit, the way that God lives. Those who refuse to obey the gospel will be condemned to eternal punishment. Though we are maligned and judged by the world, Peter says the most important approval we seek is from God. That is the most important approval that we seek. Verse 6 has this strange phrase about the gospel being preached to those who are dead. Okay, for this is why, the ESV has it this way, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, what does this mean? What does he mean by preaching the gospel to those who are dead? I don't think Peter's talking about Jesus preaching uh, to those in the grave, as some have argued. I think it's much more consistent with the passage to see this as talking about those who have heard the gospel and are now dead. Okay, the whole force of this is about the coming judgment. 
being on the right side of the coming judgment. He's talking about those who had the gospel preached to them and believed, but they died. They died. So we could render it this way, as some translations have it. This is why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. The gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Peter's responding to those pagans who are pointing out that Christians die just like pagans do. Hey, what's the point of giving up all those fleshly desires and following Christ to the point of suffering if you end up dead just like everyone else? What difference does it make? What good did Christ do for you if you die just like we die? Peter's response here is that there is a judgment after death. Okay, death is not the end of the story for us either. Though we all receive the judgment of death, those who hope in the gospel have the promise that they will be raised like Christ. Just as Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, so those who believe the gospel and were united to him have the hope that they will follow the same path in the resurrection. Death does not place us outside of Christ's care. Even death does not stop Christ from always being our defender. As Calvin put it, Jesus' redemption is not void. His power extends to the dead. Though we all die, those who have forsaken the old life, ruled by sin, and have purified their souls by obedience to the truth, can have confidence that they will not be put to shame. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Many interpreters take this to be referring to the end of the world. Peter's announcing the world's about to end. Everybody, you know, get things right. Trust in Christ. God's about to come and uh, end the world. Christ is about to return. The end of history. The New Testament, in quite a few places, speaks of an imminent event that the Lord will bring about. Uh, These things must soon take place, the book of Revelation says. Uh, There's a kind of nearness, imminence, impending event that is coming up. And we know a few years after this letter was written that Christ did, in fact, bring destruction on the temple in Jerusalem, just as he had promised in Matthew 24. When he's talking about some of these things that are going to take place really soon, he says, not one stone will be left upon another. This marks the end of the old covenant era. And I think this is likely in view. This is the impending judgment that Peter has in view when he says the end of all things is at hand. But it's important to see that this is a preview of the future judgment that is to come. Christ is still ready to judge the living and the dead. Though he judged the old covenant in his death on the cross and ultimately in uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, though that period has ended, there's still a future judgment yet to come. And in either case, judgment is coming and those who hope in Christ will be vindicated by their forsaking of their former ways. So Peter not only tells us of the life that we need to forsake, the old way of life and its desires, but he also gives us instruction in the new way of life that we need to pursue. The life of the new humanity in Christ. Life lived according to God's desires. And in contrast to those lists of vices uh, that characterize the life of the flesh, Peter gives us a sketch of the restored 
humanity in Christ, the kind of community that God desires us to be. He gives us a brief sketch of what it means to live according to God's desires, serving one another in the strength that God supplies. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Okay, notice the contrast here. In the former life, people are losing their minds through debauchery. They're losing their self-control by being enslaved to passions. And Peter says, have clear minds, be disciplined, be wide awake, have yourself under control. Don't lose your head and act irrationally. And the primary reason he gives is so that we can pray. They were not to be like the disciples who were falling asleep in the time of trial when Jesus asked them to watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. We're to live lives oriented in prayer to our Heavenly Father. We're to be wide awake, watchful, doing the work of our Father. Above all, he says in verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Instead of pursuing a life turned in on ourselves, seeking only our personal pleasure according to the flesh, Peter points our attention outward. And now that we've been redeemed, we can uh, show love, earnest love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can serve one another and love one another earnestly. Love instead of lust is the defining motive of our behavior here. And we're given a reason why again. Another motivator, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's quoting Proverbs 10, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This does not mean that love just sweeps sin under the rug or refuses to confront or discipline, but it does mean that we stand ready to forgive one another. We don't retaliate when we're sinned against. We're charitable in how we interpret each other. We're a community, a people defined by our love for one another. Verse 9, we're to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This new life according to God's will also consists in cheerful hospitality. Showing hospitality without grumbling. Without grumbling. Why did we invite them over? Now we've got to get the house ready. Now we've got to do this without grumbling. Instead of hoarding everything to ourselves, thinking, I just need to keep as much here to myself. I need to keep my life as comfortable as possible. I don't want to you know, make a meal for someone. I don't want to have to host anyone and come up with things to talk about. Now, instead of hoarding our lives to ourselves, God calls us to share what we have with each other. And many of you do this very well, and I commend you for that. We're to open our hearts and our homes to one another, not begrudgingly. This is one of those areas where we need to trust God's word over what we desire selfishly in the flesh. Okay, The $10,000 is better than the two Oreos. Trust me on this. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Then verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. 
Okay, we're to use our gifts that God has given each of us to serve one another. Okay, notice how outward-oriented all of this is. The former life is all me, 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 inward. The new life is all outward, serving others, loving others, using gifts that God has given. Every one of you has a gift from God that people in this church need. God has handed out various gifts, all different kinds of gifts for each to use, and he calls us to be good stewards of those gifts. Peter says we're to be stewards of the grace of God, of these various gifts given to us to build one another up and to bring glory to God. And we do all of this, of course, through the power of God. Peter says God supplies the strength. God's going to supply the strength for you to serve in this way. God works in us to bring this about. As we heard in our Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel 36, God promised to do this. He said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. God gives us new hearts to desire the life that he desires. He strengthens us to fulfill the task. And Peter gives two examples here to illustrate his point. He talks about preaching and more broadly about serving. Whether you are preaching and teaching or serving the body in some other capacity, all of us are to be working in God's strength to fulfill God's will. Lastly, Peter gives us the purpose of our new life, the point of all of this. He says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All of these things are done so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Hey, God did not have to redeem us. God did not owe us anything after we blew it all in the fall. But God graciously stepped in and made promises to obligate himself to us, to redeem us, uh, not, not because of anything that we have done, uh, but because he wants to bring glory to his name. And in doing that, uh, it benefits us. It's for our good. Those things are not opposed to one another. He has made us for himself to bring him glory, and honor. Though we rebelled against him and brought him dishonor, he restored us and he made us new that we might bring him glory and honor. And that is where we find true joy and blessing by living according to the pattern and the purpose for which God created us. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh and put to death our old self, he's nailed it to the cross to set us free from sin that we might no longer be slaves to sin. Let us not lose sight of our living hope. Let us not forget where everything is going, where everything is headed. Let us arm ourselves with the joy that is set before us. And let us live in terms of our new life, since Christ who is seated at God's right hand will return to judge the living and the dead. He will return to set everything right. Let us mortify our sinful desires and conform our lives to God's desires so that we may experience true joy and life and blessing, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
Amen.